Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. We see every day that the world is changing. There's more chaos, more volatility, more mistakes, more uncertainty. And it's a VUCA, as everyone is saying. In fact, I'm getting kind of tired of VUCA and VUCA. The truth is, though, (laughs) chaos and volatility and mistakes are seriously a problem. And a lot of well-established businesses are declining and market segments are changing and, you know, businesses are going out of business and it's just all turning upside down. I don't think we have enough tools to spot the right signals before it's too late. In fact, I think we're not even looking for the signals. So we're going to talk about that today. How do you anticipate the future um, and how do you get better at doing this? I think it's a key leadership attribute. And the question is, how do you do it? So if you want to think more strategically, if you want to prepare your business for the shifts in the marketplace, if you want to try to anticipate what's ahead, then you're going to need to see around corners. It's not impossible because my guest today is Rita McGrath, and she is the best-selling author of a brand new book called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Now, Rita is also an author of three other books. She's a sought-after speaker, and she's a longtime professor at Columbia Business School, widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. And she's received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50, and she's been consistently named as one of the world's top 10 management thinkers um, by a whole host of people. And as a consultant to CEOs, loads of corporations and Fortune 500 companies worldwide, not just in the U.S. So, Rita, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. And if you can help us see around corners, then sign me up. I'm ready because clearly we need this. But before we launch into that one, why did you decide to write this book at this time? I mean, you've written a bunch of other books, The End of Competitive Advantage, Discovering Driven Growth, you know, several others. Why this one? Why now? Well, as you mentioned, the concept of increasing levels of uncertainty is really starting to be felt by more and more organizations, and there are a number of reasons for that. But as competitive advantages shift, as technologies change, people are sort of saying, well, you know, how do I prepare myself? How do I get ready? And I was very struck by Andy Grove's work in the 1990s uh, in a fabulous book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And what Grove really talked about in that book was how do you, you know, once the inflection point is upon you, how do you lead the organization through it? But I was really more interested in that period before it's fully fully formed and flowing across your business. Uh, I was really interested in knowing what would come before. And the inciting sort of crystallization moment for this book came when a friend of mine sent me an article, and it was called something like, what, When You Change the World and No One Notices. And what the article's about is the surprisingly long time between the beginning of one of these momentous shifts and the time that it actually changes something in your world. 
And uh, that led me to recall Hemingway's very famous line um, when one of the characters in his book, The Sun Also Rises, asks the other one, well, how did you go bankrupt? And the response was, well, gradually, and then suddenly. Um, And that really got me working on the thesis that if we can pick up these weak signals and early warnings early enough, we can actually make an opportunity out of them rather than having an inflection point be seen as a kind of a doom and gloom scenario. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this is that there are so many different kind of signals out there that you could pick up and focus on and worry about that it gets overwhelming. So the question is then how to narrow down on the ones that really matter. So Rita, what's your view about that? Um, I think it's it's hard because when these things first start, the signal and the noise look very similar. So that's why I argue in the book you need some structured way of saying, let's think about a future scenario. Let's think about what would have to be true before that scenario comes to be. And then let's... Um, uh, you know, prepare ourselves as things come closer. And, you know, one of the great ironies about strategic inflection points, as I began to research them, is they seem really sudden, but if you've been sort of experimenting and and fooling around with them on an ongoing basis, what you'll find is when they actually arrive, you're actually more ready than you might have thought. Um, so an interesting example of this would be Nike and the whole direct-to-consumer revolution, right? And uh, Nike was fooling around with direct-to-consumer, you know, back in the 80s. They had this really clunky sort of box, like a pencil box that you would, uh, that a runner would um, strap to their waist. And what it would give the runner was information about, um, you know, the speed that they were running at and maybe how many calories they burned and everything. But it was like super clunky and really never took off. But years later, when the iPod first became the way people preferred to carry around their music when they were running, um, the folks at Nike said, hang on, you know, maybe we could partner with Apple and realize this idea that runners would like some kind of feedback and some kind of data store about their running habits. And so, you know, again, cast your mind back in time, uh, with the very first iPods, you literally had to plug them into your computer to get the data uploaded, but it uploaded to a website called Nike Plus, and it, you know, you could spit out reports and you could sort of learn from it. Um, And what they began to learn was that these feedback loops were a hugely important and valuable aspect of running for the the runners. Uh, Today, they've basically announced that they're going all in on direct-to-consumer, that they're calling it the direct-to-consumer offense. Um, And they're pulling out of retail stores. They're pulling out of Amazon. Um, And I would argue for many incumbent providers, this movement towards direct consumer models. So think of like Dollar Shave Club or Harry's or Casper's or those kind of companies. Um, It's come as a just horrific shock, Uh, but not Nike because they'd been experimenting with having a direct relationship with their consumers all along. So that's a really interesting example to me. It is an interesting example, and especially if you were looking at Nike at the time with the clunky box and even the first Nike Plus um, apps, I guess is the best way to, to say it, they were not easy to use, and only oh. the dedicated would really use them. And you would think that most people inside Nike would try to forget that they were ever associated with that experiment. So mm. how, do you, how do you make sure you keep the insights alive when this inflection points arise and you can go, oh, wait, we've been here. Hold on. We have some insight. 
Uh-huh. Well, I think one of the things Nike's done historically really well is they've always had people at what I call the edges of the organization, you know, people who were so close to the business and really watching what was happening with customers and really understanding, you know, what, what motivated them. And I think the other thing Nike does really well is they they make a distinction between, you know, an idea that was a dumb idea and and the execution of that idea, you know, that sometimes you've got the right concept, but the way that you bring it to market isn't necessarily going to work. Um, and so I think they've been very good about saying, well, you know, just because that particular manifestation of the idea didn't work, it doesn't mean that it was a dumb idea. It means that for whatever reason there was, was, there was some flaws in it. Uh, but let's not forget about it directionally. It might still be the same, the same notion. And they've always been very good at, at really trying to understand the emotion behind their brand and connect directly with mm-hmm. Their, mm-hmm. their consumers. Okay. Yeah, you can see that in their work. Um, I want to go backwards for a minute because we've been talking about inflection points as if everybody knows what you mean by inflection point. So quick example, which definition and why is the inflection point such an important idea here? Sure. So I define an inflection point as some change, and it could be technology, it could be society, it could be regulations, it could be demographics. Uh, some change typically in your external environment that makes the taken-for-granted assumptions you've been making about your business less and less true. Um, and so what ends up happening is as the inflection point begins to pick up steam, the gap between the reality you think you're living in and the reality you actually are living in um, gets wider and wider. And that can really cause you to develop these strategic blind spots. So let's take an example. Let's take um, uh, YouTube just as a a representative kind of technology shift. I mean, before you had YouTube um, and smartphones with video capability and those kinds of things, um, if you wanted to get a video image to tens of millions of people, you had to own a movie studio. I mean, you had to own incredible numbers of assets and and operate them, and you had to have trained people who would swoop around the stage, you know, on those those giant recording cranes. Um, today, you know, two kids in a garage with a reasonably inexpensive cell phone can get a video to millions of people. And the fact that we even have, you know, YouTube influencers that make a living on this is just a testament to how much things have changed. So that that shift in the cost and expense of getting a certain outcome done is very representative of what inflection points do. Okay. So there are things that happen out there that we saw trundling along that make a change, and they're going to really challenge the basic assumptions of our business and how our business is built. But the point is they start to gain momentum, and you want to get on the front end of that curve, not on the back end of that curve. Did I get that straight? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So how do we begin to spot? I mean, uh, how you gave me a great example about um, Nike, but how do we start to spot inflection points around us and to know that they're coming versus just another trend or fad that may come or may go? Well, let's take something very specific because I think that'll be most useful to your readers. So let's take the advent of 5G um, wireless connections, um, mm-hmm. you know, which all the tech people tell me is are coming. Um, now, if you think about the, the transition in the past from dial-up modems to mm-hmm. always-on high-speed, you know, fiber-connected Internet, right, and you think about all the changes that that made in the world. So it made, you know, 
video on the internet possible. It made e-commerce possible. It made, you know, seamless kind of digital connections between different parts of your organization possible. None of that would have been possible with, uh, you know, bandwidth limited dial-up right. modem kind of situation. Okay, so I, if you are if you believe that five G represents a similar um, inflection point. You can now start to say, well, what what isn't possible to do today that if we had the sort of wireless equivalent of unlimited high-speed bandwidth, um, you know, what would change? Well, if you think about it, right, the whole industry of supplying home modems would change. Mm-hmm. The the whole smart home, smart grid, smart office, smart fill-in-blank would change, right? Because now you don't need the wires and the cables and the modems. Now these things will just come straight through the air and go right to your house. This is what I'm told anyway. Um, and so what you can start to say is, well, what are the things that today we're working around and, you know, kind of making adjustments to because nobody's really solved the, the, the limitation that causes us to have to work around things. And then if you think about, well, the power of 5G to, you know, totally transform those workarounds is, is just formidable. Um, so what you can start to do then is lay out scenarios about here's a technology, in this case, that could conceivably just change the envelope of constraints we're all living under uh, in a way that you know, probably will not be all at once, just as cable wasn't all at once. Um, but, you know, you, you may recall America Online and Time Warner like merged right, right into the teeth of this cable explosion, um, making their whole business model basically invalid within a couple of years. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and so, you know, I think it's that level of, of thing. So, so the first thing is, does this change have the potential to create a really different set of constraints or... Um, contingencies uh, on your business model. Um, another interesting example would be something like Me Too, right? Um, mm-hmm. And w- while you can argue about whether um, you know its promise has been realized yet, it certainly has changed the conversation, and people are having to be a lot more sensitive to things that, you know, frankly, years ago nobody talked about. They just got shoved under the table. Nobody really thought about them. Today, you know, we're actually seeing conference organizers worrying about, you know, do they have a woman on a panel? <laughs> you know, do we have all yeah. white male, pale, pale male panels? Uh, and that's really seen as a bad thing. Um, and, you know, there's sort of an acceptability of that which has begun to erode, at least in the United States. So that's another kind of inflection point, slower, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it does change the way people behave. It changes what they consider to be acceptable. Okay. Okay. All right. So, you know, the notion that you've said is I begin to recognize some of these inflection points. I see them coming from the edges, if you will. And then what I want to be doing is experimenting with it. Is that the right kind of approach? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Because also in the early stages, there's, there's lots of ways it could go, right? And usually the ecosystem that's necessary to actually make it have a business impact is very incomplete. So at the early stages, and I'll take something like um, um, autonomous vehicles, right? I mean, mm-hmm. huge amounts of hype, billions of investment, but there is so much that's incomplete about that business model that it's going to be a long time before anybody makes money on them. You know, we don't know who's going to own the things. We don't know who's going to insure them. We don't know what the risk regimes are going to be. We don't know, you know, how people are going to pay for them. <laughs> you know, we don't know if it's going to be Ford buying them or if it's going to be us buying And there's just, you know, all that stuff's going to have to get sorted out before this becomes a really mainstream way of doing things. Absolutely. Okay, so 
you've talked about um, sustainable, competitive sustainable advantage no longer being all that important. Why do you say that? And how does all of this inflection point have an impact on our sustainable advantage? Sure. Well, so I, I don't mean that to be a blanket statement. I, I think what I'm saying is a bit more nuanced, which is it used to be um, when you had clearly defined industry boundaries, when barriers to entry were very high. You know, if you wanted to make build a steel company. I mean, you needed huge amounts of investment to do that. Um, And so what we're finding is those factors that used to make the industry-based, relatively predictive model of competitive advantages, where they would last for a long time, um, have caused an erosion in the ability of those advantages to persist. So my hypothesis is this. If you think of a life cycle, of an advantage. You know, you've got that period where it's being created, so that's sort of the innovation entrepreneurial function. You're inventing something new. Then you do have a period of exploitation, and you better hope that's long enough to pay back your investment costs. Um, And then you have the period of decline or erosion. And if you think about it, what you need to do as an organization is recognize when something's going into decline and right-size it or pull resources out of it so that you can afford to fund the new areas. And I think that's really a big shift from the way that that people traditionally thought about strategy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I first started working in the field, all the cool kids were doing industry analysis and order of entry. And, you know, those of us studying things like innovation and uncertainty, we were kind of huddled in the corner for warmth, Um, (laughs) you know, because it was so um, dominant, that idea of what strategy was. And what's happened in the intervening years, and I think it's due to this, transient advantage phenomenon is that sort of strategy and innovation have really started to overlap to the point where you really can't talk about the one without having some concept of the other. And increasingly, what's starting to happen now is that digital is becoming very central to the innovation conversation to the extent that, you know, as I think about the innovation projects my clients are working on, there's almost I can't think of one that doesn't have some kind of digital dimension to it. So you've now got strategy, innovation, and digital kind of coming together in this mix that's causing people to say, whoa, the situation's really different than it used to be. Okay. All right. So, and do you also see that the kind of period of time between when the advantage is being created and the amount of time I have for exploitation before it starts to erode, are you seeing that generally declined or is that very industry-specific? Um, I think it's specific to a couple of things. So if I were to take a Facebook or a Google, right, um, you have tremendous network effects in businesses like that. So the tend- if you play it right, the tendency for those kind of advantages to last for longer um, is, is, you know, pretty, pretty readily available, right? You, you can conceive of building something that's going to last a long time because if you're a marketplace, right, your sellers want to be where your buyers are, your buyers want to be where your sellers are, and that creates a pretty hard thing to break into once it's established. Now, that much being said, for companies that are just making products or just filling a niche or just, you know, coming up with a new way of, I'll use meal kits as an example, right? I mean, a few years ago, meal kits were all the rage and everybody had to be Blue Apron and blah, blah, blah. And today, you know, there's dozens of them for starters. And now you've got supermarkets getting into the act. So that period of advantage is probably going to be the meal kit companies, you know, settling into a base of steady users who really do find value in the offering. But the the buzzy, heady, high growth period is probably behind them. And that's what I think I see in more and more of the economy. Okay. 
All right. That makes a ton of sense. So this notion of where I've got broad tentacles that reach out to lots of different people that are using my product and services, that's going to give me some, buy me some longer longevity. Whereas I think you're saying how easy it is to copy some of these these days. So what are the warning signs in your mind of a fading advantage? A um, couple of things I look at. Um, I look at, you know, are our own people buying our product? You know, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, okay. but I can't tell you the number of banks and insurance companies and credit card companies and, you know, consumer-facing companies, and I'll ask them what percentage of your employee base actually are your customers, and you get back answers anywhere from like 30% to, <laughs> to lower, and I'm thinking to myself, well, if your own people aren't buying your product, that, that says a lot. Um, so that's one. Um, mm-hmm. I look at the talent question, so are you able to hire into that business, the people that you would like to, and conversely, are headhunters coming to you because you've got great talent in that business and they're really hungry for it? Um, I look at competition, so I look at competitors with a cheaper, you know, less full-featured but kind of good enough offering are stealing business from us. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at people addressing the same kind of problems in a really different, unique way. Um, so, you know, if I can get the jobs I want to get done done in a really unusual way, why wouldn't I, I do that? So a great example of that is um, there's a wonderful company called TerraCycle, which does basically waste management, and, and so they process garbage and do all kinds of stuff. But one of the things they do is what they call upscaling, which is they use garbage as an input. So things like used um, juice you know, pouches, those, those things, mm-hmm. the pre-sun and drinks like that come in, uh, they can, they can de- demolecularize them and then turn them into new products, but because the raw material doesn't even cost them anything, they can price those new products at unbelievably low prices. So, you know, a pencil case, for example, that might cost $10 if you did it the conventional way, they can sell it for $1.99. So that's, you know, answering the same need, but with a radically different business model than a conventional player might, might use. So those are some things I look at. Okay. All right. And then what are we supposed to do? So, you know, we started to spot some inflection points, maybe. We sort of looked at some signs that we were maybe losing and our advantage is fading. So what do we do next? Um, I really think there's two prongs that you need to look at. The first prong is internal, and that's really thinking about the portfolio of investments that you're making. Um, And I like to look at them in terms of things we're doing that support the core, things we're doing that have a chance to be the next generation core. And then there's these experimental options kinds of things. And what you will find if you're a company in that, finding out that this is... um, um, you know, not, not really working, um, what you'll find is that oftentimes the inflection point's been well away and they haven't been making those small experimental investments. Um, so I think that that's the first one. I would really take a good hard look at your portfolio and then you have some decisions to make, right? Is there stuff you've been working on that really you should kill off? Are there businesses that really aren't going to be growth businesses and maybe, you know, they're just sucking up resources. And so there's a portfolio kind of look is where I would start because that's easy. Mm-hmm. I think the next thing to really think about is your customer and really deeply understanding what it is, in, to use Clay Christensen's um, word, what, what's the job you're doing for your customer and how would that customer like to get that job done better? Um, a great example of this is um, Best Buy. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, people gave Best Buy up for dead. They said, oh, you know, um, 
e-commerce is eating them alive. There's no way they're going to be able to function, da 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 um, And Hubert Jolie, when he came in as CEO, he said, well, wait a minute, you know, what customers buy is a flat screen TV, but what they want is that TV on their wall, installed, connected to the internet with a remote control I know how to use, and, 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 right? So people really need a way of mediating between their tech and the job they actually want to get done. And he decided to make Best Buy. He said his vision for it was to sort of be to consumers what Accenture is to businesses, you know, helping them really get the best advantage, the best lives out of their technology. And so once he had that as his core kind of customer value proposition, he then backed into all the different things Best Buy would need to do to make that a reality. So, you know, upskilling the geek squad, they've got a home concierge program for 200 bucks a year. You get this sort of technology insurance where you can call them for free anytime. They'll come to your house. They'll see what's wrong. Um, you can make appointments to get your iPhone battery changed. I mean, I'm in there all the time these days because they just do this stuff so well. Um, another thing he did was he said, well, you know, instead of buying inventory and holding it, if Sony and Microsoft and Apple and Samsung all want to be in a Best Buy store without building their own stores, they're going to pay us rent. <laughs> and we'll be their showroom, but we're going to get paid for it. <laughs> and, and for consumers, this is great because I don't, I don't know when I walk into a Samsung store what's available in an Apple store or, or vice versa, whereas in a Best Buy, you can compare all that stuff uh, all at once. So I think the principle here is really understanding what is that job the customer is trying to get done and then how could we uniquely do that job for them. Okay. So it's that, again, we're looking out at what customers are really, consumers are really wanting and what problems they have and what's not getting solved or where they're doing workarounds to solve those problems mm-hmm. and trying to figure out back end on that one, where can we experiment? And it takes us right back to the story you told at the beginning about Nike. You know, they were experimenting with this box that runners could wear that might collect some data that might help them run a little bit better. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. when it actually materializes, they're sort of ready for it. Uh-huh. Um, so you have this concept of arena maps. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So we sort of need something to replace this idea of industry. Um, because what we're finding now is the most significant competitors to an incumbent industry probably come from some other industry that are getting customers, again, to do the jobs that they get um, in their that they want to get done in their lives better. So an arena represents a pot of resources, typically controlled by customers, that various kinds of solutions are vying to grab a piece of, right? And I I heard a great phrase the other day talking about new marketing versus old marketing, and this uh, entrepreneur said, um, you know, in old marketing, uh, customers were basically a barrier between a vendor and their wallets. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, what you've got is you've got different kinds of players saying, you know, buy me, buy me, buy me. And what you need to understand is, as the customer is going through this choice process, right? I mean, the biggest competitor any of us have is non-consumption. I could just decide not to do anything at all, right? And that's the default option for most people. Um, But if you think about something like um, how much money people are spending on phones and technology, and then look at how that's affecting other categories, so clothing, for example. And what we're seeing is this move towards fast, cheap clothing um, kind of being a function of uh, the need to... um, you know, to, to spend money on your cell phone bill and to be connected and to have your, you know, TV 
connection or whatever. Um, and so those two categories, which would not be seen as competitive in a traditional context, actually are competing for that customer dollar. Uh, another interesting example was um, I have a colleague who is interested in looking at spending and saving patterns. And he, one of his um, subjects was a young woman who agreed to give him um, uh, you know, access to her bank accounts, not, not just view access, right? But, and what he found was just so frustrating. She had articulated the goal of buying a new computer and would get sort of near to that goal, and then all of a sudden she'd have $500 gone from her account or $400 gone from her account, and he could not. So finally he just couldn't understand this pattern, so he called her up and he said, what's going on? You know, you nearly get to your goal, and then I see you muff it at the last minute. And she said, well... Um, you know, I'm at that age, she was in her late 20s, I'm at that age where all my friends are getting married, and so I get to this stage where I've nearly got enough money to put together for this computer, um, but then I get to save the date, and then it's a plane trip, and a dress, and a bachelorette party, <laughs> and I just can't help it, that's where the money's going. <laughs> so, you know, if you told me that uh, personal computer's biggest competition is, is weddings, I would have laughed at you, but it's true. So I get this concept of the RENA maps where I'm really looking at where consumers are spending their resources. It might be time, but it might also be money. And there's a whole bunch of people in that that are not necessarily my natural competitors. And I have to be right. mindful of what's pulling that in different directions. Makes exactly. sense to me. Makes sense to me. Okay, Rita, lots of ideas in this segment. We're going to take a break, but I think the core idea here is the notion that there are inflection points. They're coming perhaps faster than ever, but more importantly, if you catch the front end of that inflection point, then you want to do some experimenting and get kind of prepared and ready for it. But as you wait towards the tail end of the inflection point, the gap between where you are and where the world is moving gets too big too quickly. And I think that's sort of the core idea of why it is so important to be thinking about these signals that are out in the world and then trying to experiment with what they what they mean. And I just love this idea that I'm looking at what problems it is that consumers are trying to solve and what are the alternative ways of doing it, or what is enabled by something out there in the world like 5G that was never enabled before, and then trying to experiment there. All right, so... Seeing around corners. Now, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about this all-important topic of, so I've spotted an idea, how do I now bring the organization along with me? My guest today is Rita McGrath, and the book is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. 
Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today again is Rita McGrath, and the book we're talking about is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Um, Rita has a long history and a fabulous reputation in being a best-selling author and a sought-after speaker and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School and, more important, consultant to whole sorts of organizations, CEOs, and lots of companies, as you can imagine. And you can also see her coming through this, her passion for the whole notion of innovation. I like what you said earlier that that digital innovation and strategy are now all merged together. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. So we've been talking about this phenomena of inflection points and how to spot them. And then what you want to do is do some experiments. So you're getting ready for it. You're ahead of the curve before the inflection point really begins to take off. So Rita, I think this is the $64,000 question in any organization. Everybody always gives young talent the advice that you have to bring the organization along. Okay, great. Massive question is how. So I've spotted an opportunity. How do I get the organization to go with me for the journey? So are you a senior person or a more junior person? Let me be, well, either one, but let's say for the moment I'm more junior. Right. So I think if you're more junior, what you need to do is create allies. Uh, That's where I would start. So find other people that are super excited about the concept or the idea and then start building almost the case for it. Um, and, and and do it in a way that doesn't alienate people. I think one of the big mistakes young innovators make is they take the position that, ah, oh, you know, anybody who's been in this company longer than 10 years is a hopeless old bat and doesn't understand the new world and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and I don't think that's going to win any ups and minds, right? So I think what you need to do is, you know, link it to, ideally to a customer, link it to something that solves a a big organizational problem and break it down into smaller pieces so you're not asking people to say yes to something that's ginormous and, and, you know, road changing, but you're asking them to take a small action that would take you in that direction. 
Um, at a sort of more macro level, I think what you need to do is it's an awful lot of conversation. It's let's talk about the future, let's develop a point of view about the future, and how are we going to be um, relevant. So in the book, I talk about the case of Klockner, which is a German metals distribution company. They're about as traditional as you can get. <laughs> I mean, they're 164 years old, they're German, you know, and um, their CEO basically has been on the warpath that the company needs to digitize for, for many years. But he did something really interesting. So his innovation group is based in Berlin, and his scientists and engineers and, you know, the people that understand steel are based in Duisburg. And what he started to do as they moved toward this digital future is he started to really work very hard on building the connections between the digital people and the traditional people. And his argument is this. If I digitize, then our traditional model in steel of basically marking up the raw material is going to go away. Nobody's going to pay extra for that. Um, and so where we're going to make our money in the future is the skills and the smarts and the unique kind of depth of knowledge that our people in Duisburg have. So very cleverly what he did was he painted a role for both parties and showed them how they were interdependent. And, you know, it's taken a while, but, but they, the, the two are really working together now in a, in a very constructive way. Um, one of the things he did that I thought was fascinating was he introduced what he called non-hierarchical communication, which was Yammer. And mm-hmm. for the very first time in this company, anybody in the company could send a message to the CEO and have a chance of it being seen. I mean, this was <laughs> astonishing. It was a real breakthrough. Yeah. But it also sent the message and made the point that, you know, all views were going to be listened to. And that was the traditional people's views as well as um, the people who were sort of pursuing the new frontiers. Okay. There's, um, I'm sure you see this, but I certainly see it in every client. I go an awful lot of, shall I say, animosity and tension between generational differences, particularly I find between the more Gen X generation and the baby, not the baby boomers, the millennials and now the Gen Z coming along. And this kind of innovation stuff has the potentials to fall apart right at that divide line. So what you're talking about is not letting the generational differences get in the way. Is that a fair statement? Mm-hmm. I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. Okay. Um, I mean, the other thing that I think is useful is, is if you think about innovation capability, there's at least three roles that you need to have. So you need to have an executive role, somebody like a Gisbert rule saying, we are going to digitize, damn it, you know, um, setting the broad direction, creating the impetus. Then you've got the people working on the actual projects who are more of the entrepreneurs. And what I find you also need is a character I call a Sherpa. Mm-hmm. Um, where a Sherpa, like if you were going to go climb Mount Everest, right, your Sherpa is the person that's going to say, oh, it's Tuesday, I wouldn't summit today, or, oh, gee, the wind's coming from that direction, let's go this way. You know, they know the mountain, they know the terrain, they know the weather, they know what to watch out for. And the organizational equivalent is typically somebody who's had a long career in the company. They know where all the bodies are buried. They're owed a lot of favors. They have a lot of social capital. And they're the ones that can kind of help these new ventures navigate the organization. Okay. That, uh, yeah. All right. So now how do I spot the Sherpas? Um, well, you know, as I said, they're often people who are, they're sort of middle managers, middle to senior middle managers. Um, and they'll have typically a generalist title. So it'll be something like director of brand management or, you know, operations head or something. So they've typically got a cross-organization responsibility of some kind and lots of different kinds of functional units on reporting up to them. Um, 
they often will self-identify and self-volunteer. I mean, once you've explained what the concept is, they'll sort of say, oh, yeah, I love doing that stuff, you know. And what's particularly interesting to me about them is they're not doing it for the money necessarily. I mean, obviously everybody wants to be paid fairly, but they just like the excitement of seeing something new become real on, on their watch. Great. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to believe that people who look like Sherpas, meaning they've had a long history, they know where all the bodies are buried, they're owed a lot of favors, they have generalist titles, lots of cross-organizational responsibilities, that those are the ones who are going to be the blockers. Mm-hmm. And indeed, some of them are. So I guess you just have to talk to a lot of people until you figure out who is interested in the idea exactly. and willing to give some advice. Yeah, Exactly. Okay. All right. So we did that in terms of being more general, uh, junior. And I think I have um, a great idea or I see an inflection point or I see an opportunity. And then I'm going to try to create some allies and I'm going to look for them in unlikely places, including the Sherpas of the world. And I'm going to tie it to a consumer issue so that I can really pitch what's in it for us in terms of reaching that consumer. And then I want to break that into really small bite-sized pieces um, and small actions so the organization is not being asked to do too much at one time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Does any of that change if I'm more senior in the organization and I now see an opportunity and I can't get that sense of urgency for people around me? It absolutely does change because now you're in the position of A, controlling resources, and B, controlling incentives. And that makes a huge difference. Uh, So if I were to take a fabulous turnaround um, that Satya Nadella executed at Microsoft, uh, one of the first things he did was he said, we're going to stop rewarding people for profits and revenues and sales numbers because that's all lagging indicators, right? That's all today's results of yesterday's decisions. So he he changed their reward system. He said to the senior people, look, you're going to get 50% of what you do. Sure, traditional measures, profit sales. I mean, those are important. But 50% of what you do is going to be based on what he calls power metrics. And power metrics are things like customer love and customer engagement and how readily customers will pay more for a Microsoft product and those kinds of, of um, metrics. Well, you know, if 50% of your comp is coming from looking at the future, you know, guess what? Your attention is likely to be drawn there. Okay. And again, we get that very customer focused is sort of where, you know, this is just another word for another way of understanding that you see the indicators, you see the inflection points by getting very tuned to what your customers are wanting, needing, missing, thinking about spending their money on all those sorts of things. All right. Absolutely. Okay, so I find I'm going to shift the reward patterns. Is there anything else I do that I'm more senior to try to get that sense of commitment from the organization, buy-in well, from the organization? Yeah, well, as a senior person, everything you do is just dripping with symbolic fallout. So you have much more impact through, you know, the meetings you hold, the what's on the agenda at those meetings, what do you tell people you're interested in seeing, what do you sanction, you know, what, what behaviors do you say, uh-uh, we're not doing that anymore. So just as another example, what Nadella does um, during his weekly staff meeting is he sets aside, I think it's 20 minutes, to hear from some Microsoft team somewhere in the world that's working on something super cool that otherwise might never have made it to the attention of the senior executive team. And he makes that a routine part of his, his agenda. Now, that accomplishes a couple of things. Firstly, they hear about something cool that's going on, which is nice. But secondly, it um, allows the senior team to know that that 
there is this sort of mind-opening attention being given to projects that might otherwise have lumbered away in seniority, and it lets them know that's what he's paying attention to. So it's not that he's neglecting the other things, but that he's got that on his regular agenda, I think is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that message gets through the organization faster than any speech or town hall is ever going to do or any strategy document for that matter because there's an opportunity to get access to the senior most leaders and get an idea sold. Okay? Exactly. Oh, exactly. Great. Okay. All right. I want to shift the focus for a minute, and I now want to talk about, you know, so we spot inflection points. Does it always work? I mean, can things go wrong with these inflection points? Oh, of course. Oh, I mean, so, you know, nobody would be interested in my book if it always worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so what goes wrong? Um, oh, of course things can go wrong. I think the, the trick, though, is when you have something that looks as though it's going wrong, is how do you let it go wrong inexpensively and quickly? Uh, and how do you learn as much as you possibly can? And how do you get to the heart and soul of why it went wrong so that you're at least benefiting from having paid tuition? Um, oh, yeah, I, I, I never believe in predictions because, you know, you just don't know. Things are so uncertain. Um, that you just you don't necessarily know in that moment what something means in the in the longer run. Um, so I think I think um, you know getting things wrong comes with the territory, but figuring out why it went wrong and then using that to better inform the next step is um, it's just super helpful. Okay, okay, all right. Um, so you had this. Um, let's see. Sorry about that. Um, I guess what I want to hear, Rita, is just one last set of advice. If you had just a few points of you just summarize kind of in your head, what are the three, five things that you just really want people to focus on? What would those be? So I think the first thing to remember is that these kinds of changes in their early stages don't present themselves neatly at the conference room at headquarters. Uh, They're out at what I call the edges of the organization. So I think the first principle that I'd love your listeners to take away is, you know, you're never going to learn about what's going on out there by spending your whole day on email and in meetings uh, or commuting or whatever it is you do. You really need to be spending time where the changes are happening, spending time with the future almost. So I think that's the first principle that I think is super important. I think the second principle is don't overreact. You know, there's a tendency, I think, when something like a 5G or a big change looks as though it's looming on the horizon, there's this tendency for everybody to kind of freak out and start investing in all kinds of crazy stuff. And usually that doesn't work. Um, so I think it's it's this sort of much more methodical process of saying, well, how could we learn about this at low cost? Who knows about it? What, what are we um, um, doing? And I think the third thing is the more transparent you can be about your assumptions and how you're testing those assumptions and how those assumptions are changing, the less organizational conflict you're likely to have. And I find that especially with innovation programs. You know, you've constantly got this tug of war between finance and everybody else because finance is basically saying, look, you know, I need to be prudent and fiscally responsible and you can't even give me an ROI calculation for this money you want to spend. And the innovation are people saying, ROI calculation, there ain't such a thing at this stage. And so um, what tends to diffuse that tension is having transparency where the um, the innovators can say, I want to spend $500 to learn X, and then you can both make a decision about whether learning X is worth 500 bucks, and it's a different conversation than saying, I want a blank check and I'm going to do whatever I want with it, right? Um, okay. So I think having more transparency really, really helps. Okay. 
Um, and are you a fan still of taking uh, innovation groups off and taking them out of the organization and putting them in a separate location so they experiment kind of in their own and create their own culture? Or does that limit our learning that we're going to have now, given these experiments are so important? Yeah, I, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? I think there are times, and, and Klockner found this, right? They, they, they just couldn't get anything started in Duisburg. It was just too hidebound. And so it was just really important to be part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Berlin. But they also were incredibly conscious of the fact that you needed to build those bridges between the two groups. Um, so they didn't just leave them. I mean, the mistake I see all the time with Skunk Works is, oh, we're Skunk Works. We're doing cool and interesting stuff. And then they come back to the parent organization saying, look what we've created. And the parent organization goes, well, <laughs> you know? yeah, right. and they just get cut off at the knees. So I think you need to be quite judicious about the linkages that you make between the two. Um, okay. Separating a group to start off with may not be a bad idea if what you want to do is create a new business model in some way. But if you think about it, just creating a startup isn't really going to solve the growth problem for large established companies because they're competing with all the other startups. So the only right. thing that gives you a competitive advantage is if you can use your existing capabilities in some meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. I think the that's where the Klockner example is such an interesting idea that you take the old – I hate to say old. It's unfair. You take a tra- fairly traditionalist style, a fairly traditional set of knowledge and experience and track record, expertise, you might say, and try to build the bridges now with the more innovative, the future focus, the unknown – Um, the ambiguous and messy and try to connect those two groups of people in ways that make really sense. And, you know, in listening to that story, do you have particular insights about how to build those bridges across? Is there anything they did that we want to learn from? Oh, there's a bunch of things. Um, One thing that they did was they made training in digital topics freely available to anybody to take online during working hours. So if you were a traditional engineer, let's say, and you were a little insecure about your knowledge of what this digital stuff is anyway, you know, in the privacy of your own cubicle, you can get smarter about that. So that was one. Uh, they did sabbaticals uh, and field trips so people could go to Berlin if they were from Duisburg and spend a month or two or three, you know, just learning from the digital people and vice versa. So they did an awful lot of employee back and forth. They really encouraged the two groups to work on joint projects. So as digital got closer and closer to the center of the organization, the, the, the teams were actually comprised of people representing both sets of interests. So I think um, there was a lot that was done on a, on a human level. You know, and that's another thing. I think oftentimes we come into these types of issues, and the first thing we want to do is draw boxes and lines you know, and reorganize. And a lot of times you can leave the structure just exactly the way it is if you build different kinds of human connections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is um, I, what I think is fascinating about this, particularly given my interest in experts as leaders, is that we're it's again, we're not saying the new is right and the old is wrong or that the innovation is right and the traditional approach is incorrect. We're saying there's some expertise knowledge in that world of what we've traditionally done that we actually need as we begin to think forward focus, innovation, etc., um, and then we need to figure out how to marry the two together. And, uh, you know, we're back into this whole notion of collaboration, which I just think is going to be the key word for the next decade of how we actually make progress against some of these challenging issues. Absolutely. It's never the technology. It's almost never the organizational structure. It's always something to do with the people. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. In my business, that makes me very happy because it is always. <laughs> I'm glad like, I said the right thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so easy because it's so difficult because people come with such different worldviews and their own defensiveness about protecting their worldview or protecting their status in the organization or protecting their the things that they are proud of for having created and done and built. Um, and now, you know, kind of lowering all those barriers to get people to really get to know each other, to hear what each other are thinking and seeing. Um, and it takes time. And we happen to be in a world where time is not the thing any of us want to spend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, and people do get very impatient. You know, um, I think we've we've sort of almost been trained in this Pavlovian way, where like there's a stimulus, and you know, we want a response. <laughs> right. And then the world doesn't always work that way. Right. right. I see that in my clients. They're doing experimentation with digitalization at the moment at various digital projects. They're going up all over everywhere. The groups are not necessarily talking to each other, so the learning is not really there. But there's an immediate expectation of delivery on return. Mm-hmm. That isn't necessarily what's um, how it's going to happen. I think we're, you know, this is going to be a journey. I don't think it's going to be an immediate process again. Absolutely. So. Well, what you'll also find, especially with digital, is that there's a life progression to digital. Um, you know, digital started affecting businesses where it was easy. So we digitized books and music and instructions. And then we started to see digital becoming part of product, so you can't buy a hammer today without looking at the reviews on Amazon of who bought the hammer. Um, and now what we're seeing is digital is in business models. And once you've got digital in a business model, it gets very hard to separate it out as a separate thing um, because you're really, at that point, looking at the performance of the whole business. Right, right. Okay. And there we are again. If you've not been experimenting with it, sort of on the edges, it can easily catch you awry. All right, Rita, a fascinating conversation. I see why you're so committed to this notion about seeing around corners. And I think the thing that kind of just really strikes me here is, again, two things in particular. One is the recognizing signals, weak signals, we might say, of things that are changing in the world, of customer needs that are being dissatisfied, of how money is being spent in different ways, of unusual competitors coming in to take to provide a service or a product that we wouldn't have expected. Finding those weak signals. And the second part is experimenting. Small tests so that we learn. We get an idea from it, we and we learn quickly. We learn with the intention of being quickly, not with spending a huge amount of money. So that when the inflection point starts to really pick up steam, we have some advanced knowledge on what to do and how to do it. And then I think the third thing that just really strikes me is back to your Klockner story, this notion of taking people with a more traditional view and people with a more future-focused view and trying to build the bridges between the two because we need the two halves to make it all work. So, Rita, fabulous show. Thank you very much. It's, It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. And Rita's book is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in the Business Before They Happen. You can reach her on Twitter at rgmcgr. R-A-T-H, or visit her website, RitaMcGrath.com. And join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.